Well, good, bad, uh, good morning, First Baptist Church. Uh, it is a joy to be here. Uh, I uh, lived in Dallas for almost 15 years. My wife and I uh, got married uh, on a uh, Saturday in Atlanta, Georgia at the age of 21 and 19. Uh, on Sunday, we drove to Dallas. On Monday, praise the Lord, it was Memorial Day because we got married on May the 27th. And the very next day, uh, I went back to school and she went to work. And you say, where's the honeymoon and all of that? And I told her, honey, we've been on a honeymoon for 44 years. She, she has not bought that, by the way, and has not accepted that. But uh, we came to Dallas and lived here for the next uh, 15 years. Went to Crystal College, went to Southwestern Seminary, went to the University of Texas at Arlington, where I did my Ph.D. in Humanities. Uh, all four of our sons were born at Baylor Hospital. And so we love Texas and love coming back here and especially honored to be here uh, with so many friends, uh, your pastor, Morris, Betsy, uh, Blair's wife. We just love these brothers and sisters. And so I am really, really honored uh, to be here this morning with you. Our text has been read, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, a passage I've simply titled, Called to Be a servant, called to be a servant. In his very fine book, and I would commend this to all of you, it's very inexpensive, it's very, very short. John Piper wrote 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. And among the 50 reasons, I will not note all of them, he lists, he came to absorb the wrath of God. He came to show his own love for us. He came to heal us from moral and physical sickness. He came to reconcile us to God, to free us from the slavery of sin. Here's one that's related to our text today, to enable us to live for Christ and not for ourselves. But then three others that particularly relate to this passage of Scripture, Jesus came to become a ransom for many, he came to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he came to call us to follow his example of humility and costly love. Mark chapters 8 through 10 are one of the most remarkable sections of Scripture in all the Bible. In fact, it is probably the most important text when it comes to the issue of discipleship and following in the example of Jesus. It's remarkable because all three chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, follow a very common pattern. First of all, Jesus will predict that he is going to die. Then the disciples will say something stupid, and I mean really stupid, as we're about to read again in just a moment. And then Jesus, very kindly and lovingly and graciously, gives them another lesson on what it means to really be a disciple and what it means to really follow in his footsteps. In many ways, we've now come to the climax of those three lessons on discipleship and also, in many ways, to the key verse in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10 and verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, 
and to give his life a ransom for many. So what I want to do, as I always do, I am absolutely committed to expository preaching, working through a passage of Scripture verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word. I want us to walk through these verses in Mark and simply consider what does it mean to answer the call to be a servant. And Three things for your consideration this morning. Number one, it is a challenge to follow the call to be a servant. It is a challenge to follow the call to be a servant. We really understand verses 35 through 45 better if we also are aware of what immediately precedes this passage in verses 32 through 34. Look at them with me. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, our Lord's favorite self-designation, I'll note something about that in a moment, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus has very carefully explained what is going to happen in Jerusalem. As has been well said, the cross was not an accident. The cross was nothing less than a divine appointment. He knew exactly what he would be walking into when he made his triumphal entry in chapter 11 into Jerusalem. So he has predicted what is going to happen to him. He has predicted his suffering, his death, his resurrection, which I'm convinced they still don't yet get and fully understand exactly what he meant by that. And then here it comes, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him. Now, if you read the parallel account in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 21, you act to discover that they sent mama to do their dirty work. In other words, they were fearful, and I think rightly so, to make this request, and so they sent their mama, who most likely was related to Mary, so they're playing the relative card as well, and so they send their mama to make this request, and here's what they said. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, don't miss this, verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do? For you. Now, if you go ahead and later read Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, you read the story of a man that we know as blind Bartimaeus. This was a man that had been blind from birth, and Jesus has made his way into Jericho and is now leaving. And he hears this man crying out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus walks over to blind Bartimaeus, and you see the exact same question of Jesus given to blind Bartimaeus. They, he asked the James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And in verse 51, he says to blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And oh, their answers are so different. 
James and John say, we want the best seat in the kingdom. Blind Bartimaeus says, I just want to see. I just want to see. And if you put them in contrast, it's very clear who is more like a disciple of Jesus at this particular moment and time. And it's not James and John. It's a blind man who had nothing named Bartimaeus. So they come to Jesus like children saying, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And here's their answer, verse 37 and following. They said to him, well, grant us to be one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, if you again read a parallel account in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, you discover that Jesus already promised the 12 disciples, excluding Judas, of course, that in his kingdom they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they've already been promised a throne, and for James and John, think about this now, that's not enough. That's not enough. Sitting on a throne, having authority, Ruling over the tribes of Israel, that is not enough. No, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. By the way, there was a man at our Lord's right and there was a man at our Lord's left in his glory on the cross. So James and John have not heard a word of what Jesus said in verses 32 through 34. They are now asking for more than just a seat on a throne. They're asking to have the preeminent seats in his glory, his left hand and his right hand. Now, I would not have been surprised if Jesus had sternly rebuked them, but he doesn't. He's very kind and gentle with his disciples. And he simply says in verse 38, do you know what you are asking? Are you able to, one, number one, drink the cup that I drink? Or number two, to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, if you study the whole of Scripture, you will discover that both the imagery of the cup and the imagery of baptism find roots in the Old Testament. The cup refers often to one's fortune or one's destiny, but also many times the cup is used to speak of nothing less than the pouring out of the judgment and the wrath of God. That's why Jesus would pray in Mark chapter 14 and verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, the cup of God's wrath being poured out upon him. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Baptism has the idea of being flooded, of being submerged, immersed in a flood of water. And it again speaks of a divine appointment and it again speaks of bearing in his body the judgment of God upon the cross. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
So James and John, Jesus asked, can you drink this cup and can you experience this baptism? And again, very, very foolishly, they respond quickly, oh, yes, we are able. We can do it. No problem. And again, with tenderness and kindness, Jesus says to them, well, let me tell you something. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And again, if you know your Bible, who was the first of the disciples to be martyred? James. And who was the last living disciple to be on this earth after all the others had been martyred? As an aged man on a rock quarry island suffering for the Savior alone, it was John. God did have a baptism for James and John. And God did have a cup for James and John. But Jesus says, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But rather, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And it is a challenge, brothers and sisters, to follow the call to be a servant. Plato, the great uh, Greek philosopher, said, question, how can one be happy when he has to serve others? Jesus would flip that and say, how can one be happy unless one does serve others but it is a challenge to follow the call to be a servant but number two we often need clarity as to what a servant looks like we often need clarity as to what a servant looks like look at what he says there in verse 41 now when the ten heard it that is they heard what James and John wanted and having the preeminent seats on the left and right hand of Jesus when they heard it they began to be indignant they were ticked off uh, they were angry and so they were mad at James and John and all of a sudden now we've got a a, a, a tussle beginning to take place among the uh, the 12 and a, an argument breaking out not the first time by the way they griped and argued and fussed and fought about over who was the greatest who would have the preeminent seat and once more Jesus being very gentle calls them verse 42 calls them to himself and he said to them listen guys pay attention you don't understand how God flips the value systems of this world you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Now, if you've ever studied Greek, and I don't like preachers that do Greek, but this will be helpful. It's the Greek word katakurios. Katakurios. Kurios in Greek means lord. Kata means down upon. It's the word picture of someone coming up who has power and authority, and they push people down, and they shove them down. They take their thumb and they push others down to lift themselves up. And he said, that's the way it works in the world. That's the way it works among the Gentiles. They exercise authority over them. They push them down. And yes, they do also exercise authority. Those who are called the great ones, those who are called men and women of position and prestige and, and authority. They lord it over them. They exercise authority over them. And then verse 43, stop. It shall not be so among you. And indeed, verse 43 
whoever would be great among you must be your diakonos, your servant. Often the word is used for table waiters. And whoever would be first among you must be your, your doulos, a slave of some, no, a slave of a slave of all. Now, I'm not king of the world. I don't want to be king of the world, except maybe for a day. I wouldn't mind being king of the world for one day because I would not have to put up with all of the pressure and responsibilities. I could just kind of throw out some edicts and then go on down my way. But I'll just tell you, folks, if I were king of the world, I would require every Christian, I, I would leave the lost alone, they, they would never get it or understand it, but I would require every Christian to serve for six months as either a janitor, a waiter, or a waitress. If I were king of the world, every one of you in this room who knows and loves the Lord Jesus would either be a waiter, a waitress, or a janitor for at least six months of your life. You say, why? Because you'll treat people differently when you've been in that position. You will look at people differently if you've done one of those assignments. In fact, I just think really everybody ought to do a year at Chick-fil-A before they move on with their life because, number one, they are taught how to treat people well, and number two, they're taught how to serve people. So why do you say that? Well, number one, it's biblical. It's just biblical. That's what Jesus is talking about all the way through here. You want to be great in my world? Then be a servant. You want to come in first? Then great. Be a slave. I mentioned to you all that my wife and I, right after we got married, uh, 21 and 19, moved to Dallas. And like all of you, a lot of young people here, we, we were dirt poor. I mean, we had absolutely nothing. So we had a standing policy among the two of us, and that standing policy was if anybody invites us out to dinner after church on Sunday, we don't even have to, number one, pray about it. There's no need to pray. And number two, we don't have to confer with the other. We have a, an immediate standing answer, yes, yes. And if we both get asked, then we'll go back and try to negotiate the next Sunday meal with the other couple because, again, we had no money. Uh, we didn't have much to eat. And so anytime we were invited to go out, we said yes. Well, on one particular Sunday over in Dallas, we were serving a church called North Lake Baptist Church in North Dallas. A couple said, would y'all like to go out and eat with us? We said, done, absolutely. Uh, you tell us where, we'll meet you there. We'll be there before you will. So anyway, they decided that we were going to go to a restaurant called The Hungry Bull. Now, it's not around anymore to my knowledge, but The Hungry Bull Right across, right by 635 there in Garland. So we went over to the Hungry Bull, and we had sat down for a little while, and finally the, the waitress came over. And uh, if you've ever been around me, you'll know that I'm a very chatty kind of person, just yakety, 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 yakety. That's just how God made me. And so this lady comes over, and I just said, well, hey, how are you doing today? And the waitress looked at me, and she said, well, um, it's Sunday, isn't it? Now, if I'd been a smart man, which no one's ever accused me of, I'd have just stopped right there. But I, 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 was, I was intrigued, and so I said, well, yeah, it's Sunday. You don't like Sunday? No, I don't like Sunday. And I, again, began to just, you know, roll things through my mind, and I, I, and I, I said, well, I understand. 
you have to work on Sunday. And I bet you wish you didn't have to work on Sunday so you could go to church. To which she responded, when I don't work on Sunday, church is the last place I'd be willing to go. Now, at that point, I really should have stopped uh, the conversation. But I'm too deep into it now. And so I said to her, well, why wouldn't you want to go to church on Sunday? And she said, well, you really want to know? I'll tell you. She said, number one, the rudest people I wait on all week are you guys on Sunday. Number two, you don't make your kids behave. And I have to admit, at that particular moment in time, there were a lot of large cockroach creatures going all over the restaurant. And I didn't have them yet, but I did learn a lesson. And I'm like, by God, my kids aren't doing that. I will beat them within an inch of their life in Jesus' name. I am not putting up with that stuff. And don't you tell me you can't make your kids behave. That is not true. You, you, you can haul their tails out to the car or to the bathroom. or where you, It can be done if, you, if you're going to man up a girl up, all right? So anyway, your kids don't behave. And then she reached into her apron and pulled out a gospel tract. And she said to me, this thing right here will not feed my children. And you people are cheap. And she walked away. Now, I was devastated. I was only 21 years old, barely knew and walking with the Lord. And I was just, I mean, I was just absolutely gutted. So when she came back a few minutes later, I asked the Lord very quickly, you know, one of those quick prayers, Lord, help. Help me say something when she comes back. And so she comes back. And I said, ma'am, can I just say one more word to you? And she said, yeah, go ahead. I asked for it. Let me have it. I said, no, ma'am, I, 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 I want to apologize. I, I want to apologize. I am so sorry. Every time Christian people have come to your restaurant on Sunday and have been rude. But I promise you, if Jesus were to come to your restaurant and you were to wait on him, he'd not be rude. He'd be the most wonderful person you'd ever wait on. I said, number two, I'm sorry we don't make our kids behave. We, we should. And I said, and man, I'm so sorry we've been cheap. Because I promise you, if you were to ever wait on Jesus, he would not be cheap. Probably the most generous person you ever served. Now, I do not say this this morning for this. I, I'm not interested in that. But God so dealt with my heart about that last issue that my wife and I that day made a covenant with one another. And we've honored that for 44 years. Never, ever, 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 ever have we ever tipped a waiter or a waitress less than 10%. And now in this day and time, and also because we've got more resources than we've ever had, we usually tip right at 25% every time we have a meal. You say, well, I'll tell you something, Danny. If they don't do a good job, I'm not giving them anything. Well, you're a jerk. And you're welcome. That's not actually the right word. You're carnal. That is the right word. Because you see, listen to me, please hear my heart. When you and I go into a restaurant, and some of you will do that after church today, you're not actually there to be served. You are there to serve by the way you talk to that 
man or woman, and by what you leave on the table. And this much I have learned. learned. When you're generous with your giving in that context, you can leave a gospel tract, and they'll not only receive it, they'll promise to read it. And not only that, you can even open the door to build a relationship with them and share the gospel with them because you, yeah, put your money where your mouth is. And you've actually lived out before them what it means to really be a follower of Jesus as you take on the assignment of being a servant and, yes, even a slave of all. Now, he didn't just throw that at them and not demonstrate it in his own life, which leads to our third and final observation this morning. We have the model of Christ on how to be a servant. We have the model of Christ on how to be a servant. Verse 45 is probably the key verse in Mark's gospel. Jesus does a miraculous thing here, a very interesting thing here. Let me read it and then make some closing comments. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to what? To give his life a ransom for many. Now, that phrase, Son of Man, Jesus' favorite self-designation. It does not mean that it is emphasizing his humanity. Some people say, well, as son of man, he's human, and as son of God, he's divine. And that's certainly true. He is both fully human with no sin and perfect deity, but that's not what son of man is about. Son of man is a messianic title that you find in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And there in the night visions, Daniel sees one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. By interpretation, God the Son comes to God the Father and inherits an eternal kingdom. And that is who the Son of Man is. He is this glorious, magnificent, coming, apocalyptic figure who will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. So John following Jesus, takes the Son of Man title, but then the end of the verse, he came to be served. No, he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many is a direct phrase from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, which is the last verse of the great suffering servant song of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 53. And what Jesus does is he redefines in the most radical terms who the Messiah is. Am I the Messiah? Yes. Am I the king of kings? Yes. I am the apocalyptic son of man of Daniel 7. But how will I receive my kingdom? By being the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. And the most famous verse of that passage, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to his own way. And the Lord has thrown down and laid upon him the sins, the iniquity of us all. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a payment, a ransom, a sacrifice for the sins of many, yea, for the sins of the whole world. One of my favorite philosophers was a man named Francis Schaeffer. In fact, if you were to ask 
someone that studied evangelicalism. Who were the big three giants of evangelicalism at the end of the last century? That's easy. The preacher was Billy Graham. The theologian was Carl Henry. And the philosopher was Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer understood what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And this is what he said, and I close. Christ taught his disciples that the greatest among them would be the servant of all. Doesn't each of us, though, tend to reverse this? Following our natural inclinations as fallen men while ignoring the word of God? Don't we really like the foremost place? Don't we really like seeking the highest places in direct contradiction to the teachings of our Lord? If we're going to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, we must take Jesus' teachings seriously. If we have the world's mentality of wanting the highest place, we're not qualified to be a leader in God's church. In fact, this mentality can lift us into ecclesiastical leadership or fit us for being a big man among men. But it makes us unfit for real spiritual leadership. To the extent that you and I want power, we are in the flesh. And the Holy Spirit has no part in our lives. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God sent his Son to serve. God's Son sends his servants to serve too. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that convicts my heart every time I read it. Because, Lord, I have to acknowledge that sometimes I can be enticed by the thinking of this world, wanting a place of position and a place of influence and a place of popularity. And, Lord, forgive me, because when I am acting like that and when I am thinking like that, I am not at all thinking like Jesus. Lord, your son was sent to be a servant and a slave of all. And Lord, I'm never more like Jesus than when I'm serving others. So Lord, thank you for saving me from my sins through the death of your son. Thank you that he forgives any and everyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. Thank you that when he saves us, he radically transforms us and makes us brand new. And Lord, thank you that when you save us, you also call us to be a servant to others, just like you have served us. May we indeed then pick up that mantle, follow in your footsteps, and be a blessing to all that you allow us to serve. We ask and we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.